Hello everyone, what is up you guys? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube and you are not going to want to miss it. Now today's case, you guys, is a wild one, and it's one of those that I haven't stopped researching this case literally up until five minutes of recording this is when I stopped researching because I'm trying to get as much information as possible because I cannot wrap my head around this case. I have no idea what to think about it. I think I know where I stand on it. It is a closed case, however, this case still has more questions than it does answers. And you'll understand what I mean when we start to go through it, but I cannot wait to hear what you guys have to say about it. Today, we are talking about the case of Ellen Greenberg. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it today. Before we do jump into today's case, I do want to put a trigger warning on here. We are going to be talking about suicide today, and I know it might seem a little ironic to put a trigger warning on a true crime podcast or a true crime video, but we're going to be going into details today about potential suicide, methods of suicide, and things like that. So if that is triggering to you in any way, please click off the video. I'll see you in the next one. Ellen Ray Greenberg was born on June 23rd, 1983 to her parents, Joshua and Sandra Greenberg, both who actually worked in the dental field. Ellen was an only child and being the only child, she was her parents' pride and joy. They all loved spending time together and they were a very close and tight-knit family. Her parents said that Ellen was a ray of sunshine who loved life and people and loved bringing people together. Ellen was also described by her dad as as a girly girl. She loved makeup and dresses and dressing up all from her early childhood ages until her life ended. She loved dressing up. So she had the girly girl side, but Ellen was also very athletic as well. She loved sports and she was very talented in them. So because Ellen was so nurturing, it was no surprise to anyone when she became a teacher. Ellen got a job as a teacher at the Juniata Academy, located in Philadelphia. Ellen had taught in multiple grades, but at the time that this happened, she taught as a first grade teacher and was absolutely loving her job. She loved being able to work with the kids, and the students remembered her as someone who always showed genuine love and care to them. Ellen always listened to what her students had to say and really did anything that she could to help them. And it's heartbreaking because when you go to Ellen's obituary online and you read the countless, and I mean countless, I couldn't even get through all of them, comments that people have left just expressing their appreciation for Ellen or that one time she did something nice for them and it stuck with them for years after. It really does seem like Ellen was a person that would give the shirt off of their back to someone who needed it. And I know we say that a lot about people in these cases. It's always said, you know, they're a ray of sunshine. They would light up a room that they walked into. But honestly, if you go and read the comments, no one had a bad thing to say about her. On that obituary page, you have students commenting saying, you know, she wasn't my teacher, but I heard that she was amazing, or she said this nice thing to me one time. Or you have parents saying that she showed so much dedication to their children and just honestly wanted them to be the best that they could be. And so it really is heartbreaking to see how many people loved Ellen. 
Now, in Ellen's early to mid-20s, she ended up meeting a guy named Sam Goldberg. Now, Sam was a television producer for NBC, so a pretty big name, and the two of them hit it off immediately. Now, after about three years of dating, the two of them decided to get engaged, which they did, and they both were thrilled, especially Ellen. The idea of planning a wedding seemed to be so much fun, and you know, the dresses and the decor and everything seemed so exciting to her, and the two of them actually picked out a date. They were set to get married on August 13th, 2011 at the Hershey Hotel located in Pennsylvania. So this was going to be a big wedding. There was going to be a lot of people. It was going to be very lavish and extravagant. And you know, when it comes to Sam, Ellen's parents didn't necessarily love Sam, but they loved the fact that their daughter seemed happy with him. I think that that's the case with most parents. Most parents always think that no one is ever good enough for their child. And I think that, you know, in the best way possible, that is what Ellen's parents thought as well. They loved the fact that Sam seemed to make Ellen happy, but they didn't necessarily love Sam. It wasn't because Sam was a stellar human that had all of these incredible and amazing qualities. They were just happy that their daughter was happy. So this case begins on January 26th, 2011. And weirdly enough, this was actually four days after Ellen sent out the save the date invitations for her and Sam's wedding. And this day started out as any average normal day. Ellen woke up and was driving to school and on her way to school, she was calling her mom and they had a very normal conversation. They talked about tax season that was coming up and Ellen's mom told Ellen what she needed to do to prepare for that. And on January 26th, the weather outside was not great. There was actually a very big snowstorm. So because of that, the school got let out early. So even though Ellen did go to the school for the beginning of the day, the school was dismissed. So after all of Ellen's students went home, Ellen packed her stuff, got in her car, and headed home as well. Now on her way home, she did stop off at the gas station to fill her car up with gas before getting back in her car and finishing the rest of her ride home. Now, Ellen and Sam did live together at the Venice Lofts, and the Venice Lofts were located in Northwest Philadelphia, and her and Sam got home on January 26th around the same time, and they stayed there hanging out for a couple hours until about 4.45 p.m. Now, about 4.45, Sam decided that he was going to go to the gym. He was just going to go downstairs to the complex gym because it was snowing outside. Now, Sam was only gone for about 45 minutes because he came back at 5.32 p.m. And when he got back, he noticed that his apartment door was locked. Now, when Sam left, he said that he did not lock the door behind him. So there really was no reason for that door to be locked. And on any average day, neither Sam nor Ellen would lock the door if one of them was home. So Sam was a little confused when he walked up to the door and noticed that that it was locked. Now, Sam did have a key, but the issue was is that the door was locked from the inside and it was locked specifically with the swing lock. Now we've talked about these before. You see a lot of them in like hotel rooms or anything like that. You have the lock that's on the door handle. And then a little bit above that, you'll have the swing lock, which essentially is just an extra layer of protection. It's just an extra lock that you typically always have to lock from the inside. Now, again, Sam and Ellen typically never used that lock unless it was nighttime and they were going to bed. So when Sam tried to open the the door and noticed that the switch lock was on, he was very 
very confused. If you've ever seen a switch lock before, you can open the door a little bit, but you won't be able to open it all the way. So according to Sam, when he did open the door, through the small opening of the door that he was able to see, nothing seemed out of place and nothing seemed wrong. So he started calling out for Ellen, but he got no answer. And at this point, Sam was starting to get frustrated. Neighbors actually recall hearing Sam yelling from the outside, yelling for Ellen, telling him to let him in. However, he was not getting any answer. So once he wasn't getting any answer, Sam decided to pull out his phone and start texting Ellen. He starts his text by saying, hello. And then he sends another saying, open the door. The next text says, what are you doing? The next one says, I'm getting pissed. Then he says, hello? He then says, you better have an excuse. Then he says, what the fuck? And then you have no idea. So once Sam realizes that he isn't getting any response from Ellen, he's growing more and more frustrated. He doesn't know what's going on. He decides to go down into the lobby of the complex and that's where he meets a security guard named Phil. So he goes up to Phil and tells Phil the situation, says that he lives in the condo, he can't get in, that the door is locked from the inside and he asks Phil to help him break into his condo, essentially. Now, Phil actually told Sam at that point that it was against company policy for Phil to break into the door or for Phil to help Sam open the door. And I really couldn't find out why that was. However, long story short, security told him that it was against their policy to let him in, which as you can imagine, would only make Sam more frustrated. So according to Sam, he then told Phil to come with him while he went back to his condo. So according to Sam, him and Phil then travel back up to Sam and Ellen's condo where the two of them stand outside of it. And at this point, Sam said that he told Phil that if Phil isn't going to open the door, Sam is going to break it down himself. And of course, Phil said, I can't let you in. It's against company policy. So ultimately, Sam broke down the front door of his condo. And when he did, he saw his fiance, Ellen Greenberg, dead on the kitchen floor. Now, with the way that the condo was set up, when you open the door, you basically had a straight view of the kitchen through the living room, which was why Sam was able to see Ellen on the floor as the first thing that he saw when he opened the door. But her positioning was a little strange. Ellen was actually sitting with her back against the cabinets on the floor. So she was sitting up, however, she was slightly hunched over and in her hand, she was holding a perfectly clean white towel. Now, after Sam had discovered Ellen, he dialed 911 and that is when the operator instructed Sam to start doing CPR and chest compressions. However, quickly they told him to stop after Sam noticed that Ellen still had a knife lodged into the center of her chest. Now the 911 call is available online and there's been a lot of scrutiny around it from Sam's end, which we will get to in a little bit. However, once Sam tells the operator that there is a knife in her chest, the operator tells him to stop doing compressions and not to touch her and to wait for police to arrive. Now, when police arrived on the scene, they quickly attended to Ellen as well as assessed the entire crime scene. However, it was too late and Ellen could not be revived. Ellen Greenberg was then pronounced dead at 6.40 p.m. on January 26th, 
in her own home. Now, right away, when police arrived to the home, they started looking around the house trying to assess the crime scene because this really made absolutely no sense. Police noticed that there was freshly cut fruit on the kitchen counter that hadn't looked like it had been eaten nor touched, as well as freshly washed blueberries that were in a strainer. Now, something else that was noted was the fact that the knife block was turned on its side. So typically knife blocks are obviously standing straight up. However, this one was turned over almost as if someone had yanked the knife out of the knife block and it was pulled out with such force that the knife block had turned on its side and this knife block and the knife set that was in the knife block did belong to ellen and the knife that was removed from that knife block was the knife that was ultimately found in ellen's chest so because of this, it made people wonder if this was a sudden, non-premeditated attack if someone just yanked the knife out of the knife block and the knife block fell on its side. Now, along with that, police also noticed that there didn't seem to be any sign of forced entry. Sam and Ellen lived on the sixth floor of this apartment complex. And so because of that, there was no open windows, there was no forced entry coming from the doors or anything like that. So that was a big factor in this as well. Police also spoke to neighbors and employees of the complex who said that they never heard any noises coming from that apartment around the time of Ellen's death. However, the only thing they did hear was Sam yelling outside of the door when he was trying to get in once he returned from the gym. Now, the complex itself had surveillance cameras in the lobby. However, they did not have surveillance cameras in the hallways leading up to the units themselves. Now, obviously, if they did, this would help out a lot. However, they just did not have any, so they weren't able to see if there was anyone else walking up or down that hallway. Now, police also noticed that Ellen did not have any defensive wounds on her. There was also no other blood found in the apartment other than the blood that was in the kitchen. Another big part of this was the fact that the knife that was found in Ellen only had Ellen's DNA on the handle of it. So there was no other DNA found on the knife, no sign of forced entry. There was also no other footprints outside from the snow. You would think that if someone was coming up that wasn't supposed to be there, there would be you know footprints in the snow. However, there was none of that. So nothing on that side was found, but with that being said, let's start talking about Ellen's injuries as well as what the medical examiner concluded. Now, in total, Ellen suffered from 20 stab wounds. When police arrived, her body was limp. However, her hands were cold to the touch. However, her front torso and back were still warm when they arrived. Now, the coroner believed that Ellen's time of death was somewhere between 4.30 and 5.30 p.m. on January 26th. And remember, Sam went to the gym at 4.45 and got back at 5.32 approximately. Ellen had eight stab wounds to her chest, and the severity of how deep the knives entered varies. Out of those eight, someone in 0.2 centimeters and someone in four inches. Ellen also had a two-inch stab wound to her stomach, as well as a half-inch gash on her scalp. Ellen also had 10 stab wounds to the back of her neck. 
as well as 11 bruises on her right arm, abdomen, and right leg, some of which looked old, however, some looked more recent. Now, based off of all of the injuries that Ellen endured, so the 20 stab wounds, 10 being to the back of the neck, the medical examiner ruled Ellen's death as a homicide for now. So ultimately, the Philadelphia Homicide Unit decided to step in and they took a look at Sam's key fob records to see if there was any inconsistency in his story in terms of when he left for the gym or came back. However, when they did that, they saw that his timeline really was accurate. He did use his key to go into the gym and then left at the time that he said that he did. And along with that, there were no signs of anyone authorized coming or going from the complex at that time. But here is where things get a little tricky. So three days after Ellen's death on January 29th, the police came forward to the public and they said that even though the medical examiner had ruled Ellen's death as a homicide, they were looking at it as a suicide. Now, you might be wondering how on earth someone would manage to stab themselves so severely 20 times and 10 of those being in the back of their head, but we, we're going to get there. Now, the reason that police said that they were looking at this as a suicide was because there was no sign of forced entry, there were no defensive wounds on Ellen, there was no sign of anyone else being in that apartment at that time, and they also blamed Ellen's mental health. Now, after her death, police spoke with a lot of Ellen's family and friends, and they learned that in the two months leading up to Ellen's death, she was struggling quite a bit mentally. Her friends said that she always seemed anxious and worried about something, and Ellen had actually called her parents before this, not too long before this, and had asked her parents if it was okay if she, just by herself, could move back in with them to their house in Harrisburg. And Ellen's parents were really thrown off by this because Ellen stated that she wanted to quit her job and move back home with them for a little bit because she was really stressed out. And at first, Ellen's parents were worried about Ellen, you know, walking away from her job. However, ultimately, they were more worried about her. They found it odd considering that Ellen and Sam were set to get married in just a couple of months. However, Ellen reassured her parents that this was not because she wanted to break up with Sam. She was still planning on marrying Sam, but she was just really stressed out and wanted to just step away from everything for a little bit. Now, fellow colleague teachers were brought in by police for questioning as well, just to kind of get a better understanding of Ellen's mental state. And while her fellow teachers did say that Ellen was really stressed out about her job, they said that it was no more stress than, you know, the average person. Most people are stressed about their jobs. And there wasn't one teacher that said that Ellen was more stressed than anyone else. Now, once Ellen's parents heard that, you know, she wanted to move back in and that she was really stressed, they advised her to go to a psychiatrist, which she ended up doing. Her parents could tell that obviously Ellen was dealing with something, but she didn't really want to talk about it. And they thought that it would be best for her to go and talk to someone about it. So she decided to go to the psychiatrist. And this psychiatrist really did seem to help Ellen with her mood and overall stability. 
Now, Ellen didn't see the psychiatrist too many times. She saw the psychiatrist, I think an actual total of three times. However, in that time period, she was diagnosed with anxiety as well as an adjustment disorder. So her psychiatrist decided to prescribe her some medication. Now, at first, Ellen was not down with the idea of medication. She did not want to be medicated. However, after a while, she ended up coming around to the idea of it and agreed. Now, at first, Ellen tried Zoloft, which is a pretty popular medication for depression as well as some other things, and Ellen didn't love Zoloft, so she ended up being switched to a low dose of Xanax, which was really to help her sleep. She was also prescribed Ambien and Clonopin. Now, Clonopin helps with anxiety, and I think it's important to note here that all of these different medications have different symptoms that could possibly come along with them, and some of those symptoms do include dark, depressive, suicidal thoughts, especially Zoloft. Many people have pointed out that if Ellen was taking Zoloft, it is possible that she could have experienced some suicidal thoughts. Now, in all of Ellen's psychiatrist's notes, Ellen never said one thing negative about Sam or their relationship. She didn't say that she was being abused, you know, physically or emotionally or anything that would point to a big red flag here. Now, after Ellen's autopsy was done, a toxicology report was also done on Ellen, and it showed that she only had two out of the four medications that she was prescribed to in her system. She had clonopin and Ambien found in her system. And when police arrived on the scene, those medications were found in the master bedroom and not in the kitchen. But I think it is important to note that the amount that was found in her system was very, very small. Now, police also also looked through her phone and saw that there were no signs of any suicidal searches and you know sometimes people who do have these suicidal thoughts and are planning to take their own life will look up easy ways to commit suicide there was none of that you know the psychiatrist even noted in her own notes that even in ellen's darkest times she does not start thinking about suicide the direct quote is quote starts thinking about everything else not suicide, unquote. And there was no suicide note in the apartment or on Ellen's computer. So now we're going to break down the suicide versus homicide argument. But before we do that, we're going to take a quick moment and thank our sponsors for today's video. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So the argument here is suicide or homicide. So now let's break that down. So the police, who again were looking at this from a suicide angle, got in contact with a neuropathologist. And the reason that they did this is because they wanted to determine whether or not Ellen had severed her spinal cord 
when she was stabbed in the neck. Now, if Ellen did sever her spinal cord when she was stabbed, this would mean that she could have paralyzed herself, therefore would not have been able to continue to stab herself. However, if she didn't sever her spinal cord, and if she only hit her spinal cord, she would have been able to continue to stab herself and actually would have more than likely gone numb which in turn could have made it easier for her to continue to stab herself because she wouldn't have felt any of the pain. Now, severed versus just hitting, just to break that part down for you, is from my understanding, when you sever your spinal cord, you are slicing or dividing it. So you're basically cutting fully into it. However, if you're hitting it, that's not the same thing. And so when this specific neuropathologist looked into it, they found that Ellen did not sever her spinal cord. Therefore, that argument is she could have continued to stab herself because she could have possibly gone numb or if she didn't she just could have continued to stab herself in the back of the neck but she was not paralyzed so this is where things get kind of confusing because there's a lot of different pathologists and doctors involved in this so i'm going to try to break it down the best that i can so when this specific neuropathologist found that ellen did not sever her spinal cord and she only hit it the original medical examiner heard this and the original medical examiner was the one who ruled ellen's death as a homicide now when that medical examiner heard about the neuropathologist's findings they then changed their ruling from a homicide to a suicide as well. Now, again, the suicide theory is supported by the facts of there was no sign of forced entry and Ellen and Sam were on the sixth floor. Ellen also had no defensive wounds on her and the door was locked from the inside. There was no blood found anywhere else in the apartment. And if Ellen was incredibly stressed out and on these different medications, it's not completely outlandish to think that maybe she was going through something a little bit deeper and darker than anyone really thought of. However, even in that instance 20 stab wounds to inflict upon yourself is almost unheard of so because of that now let's look at the homicide theory now when we look at the theory of a homicide ellen's family has linked up with multiple professionals who have confirmed that there is no way that this was a suicide a forensic pathologist named Cyril West said that due to the number of stab wounds that Ellen had, there was no way that this was suicide. The family also hired an attorney and hoped that the attorney and Cyril could talk to the police about opening the case back up because they were very, very quick to close this case. However, police have never opened this case back up. Now, a retired police veteran named Tom Brennan also came forward and said that just because someone doesn't have any defensive wounds on them doesn't necessarily mean it was a suicide. Tom Brennan brought up the theory of a blitz attack, which is essentially when a victim is attacked without any knowledge or has no idea the attack is coming, so they're attacked basically by surprise and they have no time to defend themselves. Now, Tom Brennan also found out that the medical examiner who changed their finding from homicide to suicide had a piece of Ellen's spinal cord at their office. Now, Tom Brennan got in contact with the medical examiner and asked to go and pick up the piece of the spinal cord, which the medical examiner agreed to. Now, that piece of Ellen's spinal cord was then sent to a different forensic pathologist. I know it's a lot, but try and bear with me. 
Now that specific forensic pathologist concluded that one of the stab wounds that Ellen had on the back of her neck penetrated Ellen's cranial cavity and severed the cranial nerves in her brain. And the result of that would have been either Ellen passing out or being severely impaired and experiencing horrific pain. Now this forensic pathologist also found something that none of the others did and they said that they actually found signs of strangulation on Ellen's body. So now you have two forensic pathologists who are really saying the complete opposite of one another. You have one saying, you know, she didn't sever her spinal cord. She could have kept stabbing herself. She could have gone numb so she wouldn't feel any of the pain. And that was the neuropathologist. And then you have the forensic pathologist saying something completely different. So two very different opinions coming through. Now, I want to talk about the switch lock that was locked from the inside because that's a big point of contention in this because that part right there really does support the idea of a suicide. However, I did look into it and it is possible to lock a switch lock from the outside. So that's not an impossible thing to do. Granted, it does take a little bit more time. It takes a little bit more maneuvering and being strategic with it. However, it is possible. So we've talked about the suicide and the homicide theories, but let's talk about the person that you are probably all wondering about, and that is Sam Goldberg. Now, to this day, Sam has never done any public interviews or made any statements regarding the death of his fiance. He's currently married, actually, and he has children, but in 2020, so just two years ago, there was some new news about Sam and what happened that day that was resurfaced. Now, I told you earlier that Sam had brought Phil, the security guard, with him to the door to break it down because Phil wouldn't let Sam into the apartment or wouldn't open the door for Sam because it was against company policy. So Sam said that he brought Phil upstairs to the apartment with him and Phil watched him break down the door. Now, according to Phil, that part never happened. Sam did go downstairs to talk to him and did say, you know, my apartment is locked. I can't get in. Can you open it for me? However, Phil told him it was against company policy and he would not be able to do that. But Phil never actually went up to the condo with Sam as Sam said that he did. Now, something that was also pointed out by Phil is that Sam was wearing boots when he went down to talk to Phil. Now it was snowing outside. However, if you're going to the gym, are you really going to be wearing boots? But more than that, this brings up the idea of why would you lie about that? Why would Sam lie about bringing Phil up to the door when Phil never went up there with him at all? Now again, the keep fob did confirm the timeline that Sam went to the gym when he said that he did and all of that. However, again, it is just bizarre because why lie about that piece of information? Now, another thing that has been brought forward is the fact that before calling 911, Sam also called two other people before that. He called his parents and he called his uncle. And Sam's uncle is actually an attorney. And so before calling 911, he calls his attorney uncle and his parents, who both were on their way to the apartment before 911 was ever even called. And a lot of people have pointed that out, saying that that is very bizarre and it could be just an ironic coincidence that, you know, his uncle is an attorney. However, is there such thing in true crime as an ironic coincidence? 
Now, I want to talk about the 911 call because I mentioned that earlier. And this has also been a big point of contention because when listening to the 911 call, Sam's tone is just off. It doesn't seem like he's necessarily very worried. He seems frantic for sure, but as far as genuine concern and worry, a lot of people have said that it seems a little bit more like an act than it does, you know, genuine. And on the 911 call, Sam says some very bizarre statements. He says she stabbed herself. He also says that she fell on a knife. And if you don't know what happened, why would you jump to that conclusion, I guess is the question. Would you really just automatically blurt out she stabbed herself or that she fell on a knife when you have no idea? Because for all he knew, someone broke into his house and stabbed his fiance to death and was still in the closet hiding. You know, it's just, it's very interesting that he jumped straight to that conclusion. And along with that, when the 911 operator instructed Sam to start performing CPR, Sam was on the phone for a good minute with them saying that he was lying her on her back, he was lying her flat before blurting out, you know, oh, she still has a knife in her chest. So a lot of people have questioned why it took so long for Sam to say that she had a knife still in her chest. Sam also pointed out the fact that the house was not broken into when he was talking to the operator. And again, how would you know that right off the bat? It's just the little things that he's saying that don't really add up. Now, obviously Sam has been under a lot of scrutiny for this from the public because he's basically the prime person that everyone has looked at for this because I think that there's two options here. Obviously the option one was this is a suicide or option two, this was a homicide. And more likely than not, there is no evidence that suggests that this was a home invasion that turned homicide or that this was a random attack or that this was anyone else other than either Sam or Ellen. Now, I also want to talk about the theory of suicide and some questions that have come up, you know, through doing my research and looking at other people's comments and just my own thoughts. And the first one is the cause of death, which was stabbing and suicide by stabbing. Now, research shows that one to three percent of suicides are by stabbing. So that is a very, very, very small percentage of people who commit suicide through stabbing themselves. And while Ellen could fall into the one to 3%, just doesn't make a whole lot of sense as to why she would choose one of the most painful ways to commit suicide during the 45 minute window that Sam was gone. A lot of people have pointed out the fact that, you know, due to the depressive thoughts that she was having and due to the fact that she was very stressed, maybe she was cutting up the fruit on her counter and just thought, you know, now's the time and started stabbing herself to death. However, the likelihood of that, while it doesn't seem impossible, seems very unlikely. A lot of people have also pointed out the fact that she had all of these medications and she had all of these prescription pills. So if she wanted to commit suicide, why wouldn't she just take a route that wasn't as painful? Why wouldn't she just take the pills before she went to bed and potentially OD throughout the night? I know it's a very gruesome thing to think about and it's a very horrible, horrible, terrible thought to have. However, when you think about it, there were other ways that she could have done this. Also, stabbing yourself 10 times in the back of the neck, when you really do think about it, it's one thing to stab yourself in the stomach or in the heart. And again, I know that this is incredibly gruesome and horrible to think about, but to stab yourself in the back of the neck 10 times, 
just doesn't seem like something you would do. I also want to point out the fact that Ellen stopped for gas on her way home from school that day. Why would she stop for gas if she was going home and planning on ending her life? Again, it just doesn't seem very realistic. You know, Ellen was planning her wedding. She had just sent out her save the dates. Yes, she was stressed and, you know, she had these demons that she did seem to be fighting. However, no one who knew her said it was bad enough to get to this point. Even her psychiatrist said that there were no thoughts of suicide. And what's what's crazy is really the only person that knows what was going on behind those closed doors and maybe would have a different insight to Ellen's mental state is Sam. However, he is kept very, very quiet ever since this happened. Now, as far as Ellen's family, they have never given up finding answers for their daughter and just finding justice for her. Again, they do not believe that this was a suicide under any circumstance. And they have said that they will spend the rest of their lives trying to get justice for their daughter. So that, you guys, is the case of Ellen Greenberg, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about it. For me personally, I have a really hard time believing that this was a suicide. It's just the little things that don't match up. So because of that, I've always leaned a little bit more on the homicide side of this case. However, I'm very interested to see what you have to say about it. With that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. Again, if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah, and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way, you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every Wednesday and then again every Thursday on YouTube as well and you are not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys and until then, stay safe. Bye guys. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.